So today, uh, Pastor Jono will resume the series uh, on Genesis, uh, after we enjoyed a few inspiring weeks with wonderful sermons focusing on Easter. And today, Jono will introduce Jacob's wrestle with God, and that story is found in Genesis 32, which is our scripture reading for today. If you open your Bibles, or you can follow on the screen behind me. Genesis 32. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God with, met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messages ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to you, my Lord, that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I, when I crossed the Jordan. But now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me. And also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and make you your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put him in care of his servants, each herd by, the, by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me, and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, Who do you belong to, and where are you going, and who all, owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and third, and all the others who followed the herds, you are to, to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify them, him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. 
That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford at the, of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So far the reading today. Good morning, church. It's uh, good to be with you this morning. As we get back into uh, Jacob, just a quick uh, announcement from me. Uh, we, be, we advertised this a little while back, and I'm advertising it again. It's in two, so not next Saturday, but the Saturday after. It's a men's conference. It's been in your bulletin. I'm only just holding a piece of paper, so I have something to hold. There, although there are a few on the bench out there. But it's much better if you look at the, the email, because the link is in there. And this is a men's conference. Here's the, here's the question it asks. What is masculinity? Muscles like Thor? Uh, fashion like Harry Styles, I don't even know what that means. Um, the uh, advice, advice from men like Jordan Peterson. While our culture is defining masculinity for us, what does the, how does the Bible define it? Sorry, How will Christian men live out biblical masculinity? Now, I think they are fantastic questions to be asking. Uh, maybe there are questions you've even kind of asked before, or something like that at least and you're wondering what it means to be a Christian man. Well, that I really want to urge you to get along to that conference. You can go to the email, you can click on the link there, you can sign up yourself, pay for yourself and all that sort of stuff. It's not, it's not terribly expensive. It's, it doesn't say, it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not expensive, I, trust me. Um, it'll be a great Saturday of men getting together um, and thinking about what it means to be a Christian man. So I really, I really do encourage you. I'll be there, uh, and I know others are already booked up as well. So, so please get along to that. Well, if you uh, could give uh, the person sitting next to you or perhaps uh, a dear friend or a, one of your children or your spouse or someone else, just one thing, if you could give them anything you wanted, but, but just one thing, what would it be? I mean, there's all sorts of things that excite us and delight us. Uh, there are good gifts from God that we want to we give to other people, but what would that thing be that you would give to someone else? 
Now, if you were thinking, because we're, you know, we're in church, so you might try and be thinking of a Bible answer, uh, you might think, well, I would like to give people close to me eternal life. That is, I, would, I really want them not to go to hell. I want them to go to heaven. I want, I want the good, good side of eternal life, right? Uh, that's great. But if it's just I want the good and not the bad side, then actually we've kind of missed the mark. And, and in fact, if you thought of just about anything else, I'm afraid we've kind of missed the mark because as we've been going through the life of Jacob and seeing the way God deals with Jacob, we've seen over and over again that what God is teaching Jacob is that it's not the blessings, the things that we can get from him that are the key. He is the key. He is our, as we've said a few weeks ago, our true prize. He alone is what we need. He alone gives us joy and meaning and purpose. He is life to us. And so... If we've gone for something else, we're missing out on that. Now, as I say, God has been teaching Jacob that. And here in this passage, we we have this odd account of God coming and wrestling with Jacob. What I mean, what a strange thing to do. Here we actually see Jacob come to a turning point in his life. It's not as though he has nothing else to learn, but here he has a turning point in his life. And as we examine what God does to bring him to this turning point, we start to see what God might do for us, not necessarily, he can work in lots of different ways, but what he might do for us to bring us to the point where we can see that he really is our true prize. Well, uh, we've been away from Jacob, so let me just remind you of where we're up to. Uh, Jacob... Just before this chapter, he has had an interaction with Laban because uh, La- Jacob was living with Laban for 20 years. He now has two of Laban's daughters as his wife, Rachel and Leah. Thank you. Um, I nearly said Rebecca, but that's his mum. It, it does get very confusing, let's be honest. I mean, uh, uh, but also they're two maidservants, so he effectively has four wives uh, and 11 sons and a daughter. He's managed to accumulate lots of flocks and herds and servants. He's incredibly wealthy. Uh, and God comes to him and says, leave. Uh, and Laban was ripping off, so he's very happy to leave and go back to the promised land. He leaves without telling Laban uh, and, and heads back to the promised land where his, his family is. Now, of course, he left his family because he'd uh, deceived his father and cheated his, fa- his brother, Esau, out of his blessing, which is why... Esau wanted to kill him and why he had to flee there and go to Laban in the first place. Uh, He's heading back there now. That's why he's, as we see here, he's nervous about meeting Esau again. Now, Laban pursued him, but God came to Laban and said, don't touch him or else, effectively. And so Laban has gone back home. And then in verse 1 of chapter 32, we read, we read, turn on the silly thing. That's what we read. There we go. This is what we read. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Maha'anim. Now, I don't know about you, but I I read those verses and I'm like, What? Give me more? (laughs) 
He met two angels. And what? You know, what, what, what happened? What, what were they doing there? What did they say? Why were they there? Uh, what happened after that? We don't know. We're not told anything. They're just, oh, yeah, met, met, if you came to me tomorrow and said, yeah, I just met two angels, I'd be like, you got any more? <laughs> I'd like to know more. No, that's all we've got. But obviously that's all God thought we needed to know. But presumably, uh, sorry, uh, it would seem, as we kind of think about what's going on here, uh, the key point is that these guys, it would seem, are, are there to comfort Jacob. They're, they're to encourage Jacob. He's just heard that uh, God said to Laban, don't touch him or else. So he already knows God's on his side. But now here we have angels. And it, and it probably also goes back to that vision at Bethel when he's fleeing uh, Esau. He's alone at night, if you remember, and he has a vision. And he sees their angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And, and God comes to him and, and, and basically says, I'm, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to bless you in the meantime. And, and the, angels, the vision of the angels is to assure him that God is at work through his angels on, in the earth. And now he meets these angels just before he's going to meet his brother. And so the, the, the implication seems to be God is saying to Jacob, I'm with you. My angels are there with you. I'm looking after you. Everything is going to be okay. And it's as though he calls, uh, I say that because the word Mahanim uh, means two camps. And so it's as though Jacob is saying, uh, there's my camp and there's the camp of the angels. The angels are here with me. And that's important because the very next thing that happens to Jacob is that he sends messengers out to Esau it's very conciliatory in his tone. He says, I'm looking forward to meeting you, basically. Uh, uh, I'm your servant. I'm, I'm wealthy now. And now I'm looking forward to, to, to seeing you. I hope I find favor in your eyes. And he gets no message back. There's no word back from Esau. All he is told is that Esau is on his way now and he's coming with 400 men. Now, 400 men, that's scary. Well, that's dangerous. That's way more than it would seem Jacob has. Uh, you, you know, and unless, unless they're coming for a really, really big party, you don't need 400 men to, for a family reunion. You, it's just not necessary. And so Jacob is, verse 7, in great fear and distress. And so Jacob, as he does, he acts. He's always got a plan. He's always thinking. And so he divides his camp into two uh, and, and says, uh, well, if they attack one, at least the other one can get away. I mean, it gives a sense of how f afraid he is. It's like, well, if we have to sacrifice half the people, at least half the other half can get away. Um, and then we're told a little further down that he sends out these gifts of goats and, uh, and rams and camels and bulls and donkeys and so on. And they all go separately. One, one group goes and then, the, and then there's a gap, and then the next group goes. And they're all to come to Esau with this, with this message. They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to, you, to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. And Jacob says, well, hopefully we'll pacify him with these gifts. Now, it actually turns out that Esau's not angry at him, just so you know. We'll see that next week. But Jacob is in deep distress and fear and so he acts but he doesn't just do these two things he does something that he hasn't ever done before or at least as far as we're told and that is Jacob prays in verses 9 to 11 
he actually cries out to God. He calls out for God's help. Now, he hasn't done that before. This is, this is quite a change in Jacob. And he, it's a good prayer. He repeats to God God's promises. He reminds God of what God has said he's going to do. He, he thanks God, essentially, for what God has already done. And then in the middle, he says, Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mother, mothers with their children. Now, it's kind of an aside, but I think it's kind of worth noting that whenever you see a prayer in the Bible maybe not whenever, but pretty much every time you see a prayer in the Bible, this is what they do. They, they, remind, they pray back to God his promises. They say, God, you said you were going to do this, and you said you were going to do that, and so far you've done this, and so would you please do the thing that you said you were going to do? That, that's what Jacob is saying. You know, he says, uh, you said that I was going to be as prosperous as the sand of the sea. Uh, that's, that can't happen if all my wives and children are killed. Just, you know, just heads up, God. But he's, he's repeating the promises back to God. Now that's... There's something for us in that because uh, when we pray the promises of God back to him, what we're also doing is we're praying the priorities of God back to him. The very things that God promises us are the things that God thinks are important. Wisdom and love and transformation and a deeper understanding of himself and the fruit of the Spirit and all those kinds of things. That's what God has promised to give us. It would make sense if we asked him for those things because that's what he thinks is important. Well, that's what Jacob does. Jacob says, well, you promised this is what you're going to do, so please do that. And so you might come then to that kind of end of that section and you think, well, then why does God come and wrestle with Jacob? Like, Why does he do that? You could almost take that section out and you might think, well, you know, Jacob is, is, change, is a changed man. Look at him. He's, he's praying to God. He's asking for God's help. He's, he's never done... Like, what does Jacob still need to learn? That God has to come and do this weird thing of wrestling with him. Well, it's possible. We can't see into Jacob's heart, but it's possible that even though he has prayed to God, he's not really trusting the promises of God that he's just prayed. He doesn't really believe that God's going to do what he says and that's why he has to split his camp and that's why he uh, sends these gifts with the, with the message and he spaces them out. And, you know, he's, he's very clever. And maybe that's because he's praying but he doesn't really believe that God's going to help him. Uh, that's possible. As I say, we can't see Jacob's heart. It, it's not necessarily wrong though. Just because you pray for something doesn't mean you suddenly have to stop taking action in that area. Right? If, you, if you pray and say to God, God, would you please give me meaningful employment? I know you want me to be, use my hands to help others, as it says in Ephesians. Therefore, God, can you please give me meaningful employment that I might serve you and give to the community? That doesn't mean you suddenly stop making any effort to try and get a job. Well, I've prayed for it now, so it's, it's in God's hands. No, you, you do the things that would help you get a job, right? You write up in a resume and you uh, apply to jobs and so on. You, you take the actions that God normally works through. And so it's not necessarily wrong that Jacob takes these actions. They're, they're not wrong. There's no sin here on his part. So it could be that Jacob's just not trusting God's promises. I think the real 
hint, though, of what Jacob is doing wrong is, or has got wrong, or needs to learn, I should say, is in verse 9, where he prays this, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, or Yahweh. Now, what's missing from that? Me, God of my, my God. O oh God, my God. Not just my father and my grandfather, but my God. Now, he does call himself a servant later on, but he, he doesn't refer to himself. And it seems that, well, it, it may be that this refers back to, to the, again, to Bethel, where... If, as I said, God appears to him in a vision and says, I'm going to look after you. And Jacob says, okay, if you look after me and bring me back to the land and bless me, you can be my God. And it's like, oh, wow, Jacob, what a, you're such a generous guy. You know, what, a, what a generous offer you've made. Yeah, great. And it may be that he's still kind of holding out. In fact, it seems like he is holding out. He still hasn't quite accepted God as his God. He acknowledges God's blessing. He acknowledges God's work. He acknowledges that God is doing things in his life, but still he holds God at arm's length. He's not fully thrown his lot in with God. God isn't the center of his life. His life isn't about serving God. It's still to some degree about getting what he wants, controlling God, and, and hoping that God will bless him without actually having to pay much attention to God himself. And friends, it is easy. It's, in fact, it's very possible, isn't it, to be praying to God, to be asking God for things, but actually to be keeping God at arm's length, to be saying, well, God, um, I would like you to give me the things that I'd like, but you can't actually be at the centre of my life yet. I'd like to still really be in charge of that. My life is not really about you, it's about me. And you're welcome to contribute to that, but that's about it. That's possible, isn't it? Well, that's why God comes to wrestle with Jacob. Because Jacob still is wrestling with him in a way by keeping him at arm's length. And so we read in verse 22 that Jacob got up in the night. We don't know what time in the night he got up. Uh, and we don't really know why, presumably for secrecy's sake, to kind of put some distance between himself and the family. He gets, he gets up in the night and sends them across uh, the Jabbok, the river, uh, his wife, his kids, all his possessions, and he is left there in the dark on his own. And a man comes and wrestles with him. Let's put it as simply as that. And we're told in verse 24 that this man, as he wrestles with him, oh, sorry, in verse 25, it says, the man saw that he could not overpower him. Now that's an odd thing to say, isn't it? Because the, we're going to find out in the next couple of verses, like if you were reading this for the first time, you, you go, oh, must, he must not have been very strong. And then you keep reading on and you go, well, hang on a minute, that was God. <laughs> And in fact, the very next part of the, part of the sentence, it says, and he touched, just touched, the socket of Jacob's hip, so the hip was wrenched. He kind of, I guess it's kind of dislocated or something. I don't, I don't really know. But 
So he clearly could overpower him. But it says he couldn't overpower him. Well, what, what's going on there? And I think the best ex- explanation for that is if, if you were to wrestle with your children, or if you don't have children, if you wrestle with little kids or anyone kind of much smaller than you, you it wouldn't be a good idea to kind of wrestle with them standing over them or kneeling over them or anything. Because if you, if you slip and you fall, you're like, just squash them underneath you and like if you're as big as me or Wayne or someone like that like it's just that's going to be a problem because they're so much bigger and so you might lie on the floor and let them kind of jump on top of you because then yeah you can hold them apart and not really hurt them too much and it seems like what's happening here is that Jacob won't give up being Jacob And the only way, and God could overpower him, but not without doing really great damage to him. That is, God had the power to destroy him, to break him completely, but he didn't want to do that. So he couldn't overpower him without hurting him. And so he takes, in a sense, the least painful option by dislocating his hip. And so then Jacob says to him in verse 26, having realized that this is not just a man because he can dislocate his hip or wrench his hip in a a touch. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Or if you like, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That is, I don't think Jacob's focus is so much on the blessing as such because Jacob has already been blessed. He was blessed when he stole the blessing from Esau. He was then blessed again before he heads off. He's uh, been blessed by God and he admits it um, uh, while he's been with Laban. He's been blessed. The, the issue in, in a sense is not blessing, like what can I get from God? It's He's saying, I want you, God. I want relationship with you, God. I want you to bless me. I want, I want to know your care of me and your concern for me and your relationship with me. He's saying effectively, God, you're my only hope. You're my prize, as we've been saying. God, you're what I really need. I, I can't outdo you. Or I, you're what I need. You're, my, you're what I have to have. If I don't have you, I don't have anything. You, you bless me. You give me what I need. I want it from your hand. He wants God. His days of just wanting God to give him stuff and, then, and keep out of his life are over. He, he, he's, he wants to know and relate to God. God is his prize. And so this is the turning point. That's why he gets renamed, as we'll see in a second. It's a turning point for Jacob. And it's worth just stopping and thinking about what God does to him to get him to this point. Why is he, why is he willing finally to say this? Well, firstly, notice that Jacob is in great distress and fear. He's facing great trouble. I mean, as I say, it doesn't happen. He thinks it's going to happen. It doesn't end up happening, but... He's, he's in great fear. He's, he's alone in the dark. Uh, just imagine that. You've sent the whole family away. You're waiting to meet your brother. You know he's nearby. 
and you're in the dark, you can't see anything, and suddenly this guy jumps you out of nowhere and you're fighting with him for, for hours on end. Oh, that's scary. He's, he's in great distress. And that is often when we will turn to God and cry out and say, God, you're, you're all that I need. I, when he strips away all the things that we often rely on, when he strips away the things that we've turned to for comfort and happiness and, and, and a sense of meaning, and when he, when he takes those things away and we have no choice but to cry out, God, if, you don't, if I don't get you, if I don't get blessing from you, if I, if I don't know you, I have nothing. That's how he often works because often until we get to that point where we, where we have nothing left, we're not willing to do it. We're not willing to cry out because we keep leaning on the other things that are around us. I, uh, I, don't, I think I might have told, I know I've told at least some of you this story before, but I, I've had such an experience my, myself. No, nothing like Jacob's, of course, but nevertheless, God did, in a sense, bring me to my knees that I might cry out to him. It was the day uh, after Vicky gave birth to our eldest daughter, Rebecca, uh, I found myself in emergency, um, in pain, actually in the dark and alone. I was in a corner. I don't know that's, that can happen in emergency. I don't know if you've ever had that, but I was just kind of in this corner. I don't know if it was a room or what. I mean, you know, emergency's busy. Uh, feeling like a useless father because my <laughs> I'd abandoned my wife and my, my newborn daughter. Uh, facing more pain, uh, to try and fix me, but, you know, that's always painful. Um, and I had nothing. I mean, what do you do? You can't do anything in that situation. What can you do? And so I, I cried out to God. Now, he didn't fix everything. I didn't stand up from the, from the bed and sort of wave to the nurses on my way out and say, thanks very much. It's all, it's all better now. That's not what happened. No, I still had to go through medical treatment. But what he did do was give me a deep sense of his love, of his nearness, and of a saviour who, who himself has suffered alone and in the dark. And to know that my saviour knew what it was to suffer and was there with me was a deep, deep comfort and encouragement. But you say, I wouldn't have known that. I wouldn't have experienced that if God hadn't brought me to the end of myself. I would have just happily skipped along through life. La, 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 everything's good. No, I was a stubborn soul that needed to be brought to my knees to seek God in trouble. Well, there's no great merit to me or, or to Jacob or anyone who's been through that. But often that's what God has to do to bring us to himself. And I'm sure many of you know that story. Perhaps some of you don't. Some of you are clever enough, not clever enough really, but God has worked differently in your life to bring you to himself in a different way. Well, that's great. But many, many will also know this story, that it is through the dark times that God brings them to them himself. And, and not necessarily to the big ones, but often just even little ones. When things go wrong and you're having a terrible day and you're at the end of yourself and you don't know what to do and you cry out to him and he's there. 
Well, that's what God had to do with Jacob. But he didn't just bring him to a point of distress, he also humbled him. Jacob fought with him all night. He might have thought that he was doing well. <laughs> and then, in an instant, he lost. Just like that. When his hip was wrenched. And there can be days, can't there, when we think we're very clever. We think we're doing very, very well, thank you very much indeed. Where we're outwitting all the people around us. We're, we're like Jacob, we're the, we're the deceiver, we're, we're, we're very clever and we're, we're organising all of our life all around us and then it all stops working. When God steps in and he proves to us that he is really in control. And that's humbling. And it's not always nice, but it's necessary. And friends, some of you are perhaps still trying to outwit God with cleverly crafted prayers or having built up in yourself a, a deep sense of faithiness, whatever that might mean, so that God has to do what you ask. You, you do what you want and then you kind of post, post doing what you want. You ask God to come in and, and bless what you've already decided or maybe you've just, you just keep doing... You sin, thinking, well, God's gracious. He has to do, he has to be gracious. He says he's gracious. Oh, he is gracious, but that's... <laughs> You're trying to outwit God. But God will not be outwitted and he will not, in his kindness and his grace, allow you to keep thinking that you can outwit him. He is, like he does to Jacob here, he is going to step into your life and call you pull you up and humble you so that you realize that you need to rely on him, trust in him and, and, and turn to him and seek him and say, God, you're all I have. He wants us to give up on our self-sufficiency and say, God, you are what I need. And so he will humble us and show us we're not in control. And finally, Notice that Jacob left with a limp. He doesn't leave unscathed. Uh, presumably he could have. That is, if God was powerful enough to wrench his hip, he's powerful enough to put it back in as well. So why does Jacob leave with a limp? And limp for the rest of his days? Well, because... Sometimes we human beings are forgetful and even when we learn really important lessons, we need a reminder, a daily reminder perhaps, of the things that God has taught us. And this was a reminder not just for Jacob, but for the people of Israel through the ages. Verse 32, they don't eat the tendon attached to the hip. It was a reminder. Now, whether they understood the reminder, it was nevertheless a reminder. It was a reminder that Jacob went from being the schemer, the one who tried to do it all his own way, to the one who wrestled with God and overcame. That's verse 28. It's, I mean, and with humans, but the, the name itself, Israel, is to wrestle with God. El, at the end of words in, in Hebrew, uh, is Elohim, which is the word for God. So Israel, in a minute, Peniel, it's a reference to God. He wrestled with God, Israel. He's a, he's a wrestler with God, but overcomes. How did, how did Jacob overcome God? 
Well, he clung to him and said, if you don't bless me, I'll get nothing. That's what it means to overcome in this situation, <laughs> to, to cling to God. And he did. But now he's a man who doesn't try and get it his own way. He's a man who clings to God and relies on God and looks to God for help. But actually, if, you, if we just ask the question, why doesn't God heal Jacob, fix his hip, we've, we've actually asked kind of the wrong question. Because look at verse 30 with me. Jacob called that place Peniel, because I saw the face of God and yet my life was spared. Over and over and over again in the Bible, it, to see God as a sinful human being is to die. Like there's... Like, that's just what happens. A sinful human being cannot come into the presence of God. And so there's, there's in a sense, there's a surprise there in verse 30. I saw the face of God, and yet I was spared. Wow. How is that possible? So that's the, the, the real question is, how was Jacob able to get away with just a, ba a bad hip? <laughs> he should have just been wiped out. He should have just been wiped out because to treat the, cre the creator of the universe, the, the sustainer of the universe, the God of grace and kindness and justice, like Jacob has been treating him, means that he deserves to be destroyed, just like the rest of us. So how is it that Jacob gets away with just a bad hip? Well, the answer, of course, comes in the form of another man, thousands of years on, who also was alone in the dark and wrestled with God. It wasn't a physical wrestling like this. It was a wrestling in prayer when he called out, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. If there's any way, Father, that I don't have to suffer your wrath against the sin of your people, my people, then please, let's, let's do that instead. But Jesus, unlike Jacob, didn't need to be forced into submission. He was willing to submit. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross, Paul tells us in Philippians 2. And because he took the wrath of God against our sin, against our rebellion, against our mistreatment of God, we can now see God face to face. Jacob could see God face to face and instead of being destroyed, left only with a limp, which was a gracious reminder of what God had done in his life and a new name, which reminded him the same. You see, friends, <laughs> if Jesus hadn't wrestled with his father in the garden and yet submitted and gone to the cross even if by some miracle, and it is a miracle, we recognize that God was our true prize, we'd be stuck. Because we would want to see God face to face. We would want God. We would desire. We would long for God. Seeing Him as, as the best thing we could ever have, a relationship with Him was the ultimate thing. And yet we couldn't do it. We couldn't go and see Him. Well, that's the story of Israel. It's the temple and the curtain and the, and the sacrifices and over and over. It's, it's, you, you might want God, but you can't get there. But because Jesus wrestled in the garden, 
and because he was willing to fulfill their plan together to take on our sin and be crushed and wounded we might we can live with God face to face and we too might limp for a time in this life to remind us not to grow proud and self-sufficient but even that will go and we will live with God forever because Jesus was our true and better Jacob who wrestled with God and submitted on our behalf. And so now we can live face to face with him. And so are you still wrestling with God? Are you still keeping God at arm's length? Resisting him? Asking him for things? but still wanting to control your own life. Well, my prayer for all of us, including myself, is that God will do whatever is necessary in our lives so that we come to him and we cling to him and we say, Father, if you don't bless me, if I don't have you, if I don't know you, if I don't delight in you, I have nothing. Whatever it takes. And the good news is the way is open we can see God face to face because of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you did not uh, stop with Jacob despite his sin and rebellion and selfishness and desire for control, his deceptiveness. You were faithful to your promises. You were gracious to him. And you brought him to yourself to the point where he clung to you for blessing. And Father, we pray that you would bring each and every one of us to the point where we cling to you, knowing that you are our only hope, that you are our true prize, that there is nothing better in this life than knowing you and relating to you and enjoying you and glorifying you. Lord, bring us to that. Whatever it takes, And Father, if we're still wrestling with you and keeping you at arm's length, trying to use you for what we can get, we ask that you would forgive us and work through us. And Father, we thank you so much for Jesus who, was, who wrestled. He was in deep distress and yet he was willing to die in our place, to take our sins, so that now we might come to you with great confidence because of him, because his blood has washed us clean and we are acceptable in your sight. We pray all these things in his name and for his glory.